Welcome to Two Bees in a Podcast, brought to you by the Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory at the University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences. It is our goal to advance the understanding of honeybees and beekeeping, grow the beekeeping community, and improve the health of honeybees everywhere. In this podcast, you'll hear research updates, beekeeping management practices discussed, and advice on beekeeping from our resident experts, beekeepers, scientists, and other program guests. Join us for today's program, and thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. In this episode of Two Bees in a Podcast, we will be joined by Doug McGinnis, who is the former owner of Tropical Blossom Honey. He is an expert on the history of the honey industry, importing and exporting honey. He's just a wealth of knowledge about honey. That will be followed by a segment where Amy interviews me, where I talk about arthropod invaders in honeybee colonies. How is it that honeybees have such a low number of arthropod invaders, and how did those invaders that are there overcome honeybee defenses? And of course, we'll finish today's episode with our question and answer segment. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this segment of Two Bees in a Podcast. In this segment, we're going to be talking about something sweet, Amy. What do you think it is? Bees, sweet, what do you think it is? Hmm. <laughs> I guess I could say candy or honey, but bees it's, don't make candy. But you can make candy from honey. You can make candy from honey. And of course, the word honey is in the, in the phrase honeybee. So we're talking about honey and we're talking about honey with not just someone who knows a little bit about it, but we're talking about honey with someone who knows a ton about honey. We're talking with honey with Doug McGinnis. I know that's a lot of tongue twister, but we're talking about honey with Doug McGinnis, who is a Florida beekeeper here. He's former co-owner of Tropical Blossom Honey based in Edgewater, Florida. He's currently a board member of the Atlantic Center for the Arts. He has a lifetime experience in the production of honey, but more importantly, in the marketing and sale of honey. Doug, thank you so much for joining us on Two Bees in a Podcast. Thanks, Jamie and Amy. It's a pleasure to be here. It's nice talking with you. I miss yeah, being there at the Bee Lab. Yeah, I know. I was going to say for the benefit of our listeners, I, I just wanted to say that, you know, we're working at the University of Florida. You're a Florida beekeeper, but you've really got a kind of international perspective on honey, honey production and honey marketing and sales. But Doug, before I get there, I want to mention two things. Number one, you obviously have been a great supporter of the B-Lab, helped get the thing built in the first place. And we're excited that you uh, and your family sponsored the museum that we have here. But the second thing, Doug, I wanted to tell our readers, sorry, our listeners, what it's like to be based in Florida. We, we were just interviewing another podcast interviewee right before we brought you on. And I was looking outside of my magnificent window this of this new bee lab as i was listening to our interviewee and lo and behold i was looking at a tree and out of this tree falls a gigantic raccoon i don't know if it fell <laughs> asleep in the key you know doug that you're in florida when you're staring out your window <laughs> and from 30 feet in the air a gigantic raccoon just falls out hits the ground kind of stumbles a little bit did you check to off. see if it was okay well, I didn't. I was in the middle of a podcast <laughs> interview, Amy. Now we have Doug, who's also in Florida, who probably has a ton of raccoon dropping out of the tree stories, Doug. Yes, I live <laughs> way out in the country. And uh, every day I have raccoons and deer. And uh, now the air is just full of birds. So um, I, I love living out in the wild. I also <laughs> love living in Florida. 
um, but it's, it's totally unique. Uh, it's been very good for beekeepers for many, many years. Well, Doug, every time I'm around you and talk to you, you always bring up the rich history of bees and beekeeping in Florida. And for our international audience, I know that this topic of honey marketing, sales, production, et cetera, the history that you have with it really is going to be of interest to them. So without further ado, Doug, let's just get straight into this. If you could just give us a brief introduction about yourself, you know, your family and all that stuff. Amy's going to ask you specifically about your business in a moment, but I just want to hear about you, how, how you found yourself in the beekeeping business, just a little history about you, where you grew up, et cetera. Well, I actually have been in it in one way or another uh, for many, many, many years since I was a, a little kid. Um, and my parents had the business here. We started with a fruit stand uh, where we had oranges and um, uh, we had bees. So uh, eventually we had an extracting plant here where beekeepers would come in uh, during uh, the winter. They'd come down here for orange blossom and stay through gallberry season. So we had a lot of beekeepers in and out of our place. Uh, and so that's where the relationship really started. And I remember going to Florida State beekeepers meetings at Charlotte Randall's Waxworks over in uh, Umatilla years and years ago. And it was a huge group. There were a lot of beekeepers here. So later on, uh, I actually went to the University of Florida. I got my degree in journalism. And after working in a few small newspapers, my parents uh, called me and asked uh, if I would like to come back to the business. And so I, I moved back here to Edgewater from Gainesville in 1976. And automatically, uh, we were in this cycle of a lot of export work. So I got to know our export customers and uh, got to do some traveling and really got into the marketing end of the business. So that's how I started. But the company um, started here in 1940 and was always that sort of outlet for Florida and later Georgia beekeepers to bring their honey for, for sale. So um, I've been at, in it all my life. Hmm. Are you, um, so are you second generation then? Second generation, yes. My parents moved from West Virginia in 1937, came down here to live with my great uncle who had a little shack out in the woods, but owned half of the town uh, out there. And uh, he taught my dad beekeeping uh, and um, also citrus production. So they found this place in 1940 uh, and we uh, began both a citrus and a honey uh, business selling uh, right on US-1. There was no I-95. And so uh, we had a fruit stand here, sold our honey and honey products. And we really started uh, finding out more ways to sell honey gifts. And uh, dad in 1947 um, discovered, along with a friend of his, uh, designed a globe jar, which was a round jar that actually was designed to take the place of an orange and a citrus fruit pack so that when all these deluxe fruit packs went out uh, at Christmas time, they would have a jar of tropical blossom honey in them. And that's because the jar would actually fit in the um, box of citrus fruit quite easily. Hmm. So um, that was 
probably the first part of our business was really the tourist industry. And we learned, we developed many different honey gifts um, at the fruit stand. I sold things like uh, coconut heads and uh, those little squeeze monkeys that bang their drums when you and uh, um, all sorts of different knickknacks and crazy stuff. Uh, in the early 50s, my sister even uh, had a, um, a box full of Cayman alligators um, that uh, she would feed them chicken necks. And uh, we had, this was the only way to get to Miami. And so we had a constant stream of tourists and developed honey products that they could take home and enjoy. Well, Doug, I'm listening to all this and starting to think we should ask you a whole different set of questions than what we have scripted. <laughs> I was, yeah, that's so funny. I was so, I mean, you had also kind of mentioned the export import products, right? So you kind of came into that. So was that already kind of set in place? And let's, let's go ahead and veer into what we were going to ask you about with selling honey. Yes. So in 1965, we, we had built up this business uh, selling to tourist outlets uh, throughout Florida and even uh, a little further up on the East Coast. And at that time found out, you know, we have two main crops of, of honey here in Florida. Orange blossom, of course, that's what everybody's um, uh, signifies Florida, really, and was our most popular. But we also have this wonderful wildflower crops of gallberry and saw palmetto. And uh, we did not filter these honeys. They were cloudier. They were darker. Um, the U.S. population didn't seem to like them. But we found in, in Europe, this was the way they liked honey. They didn't want it filtered. They wanted it as natural as possible. They loved the flavor profiles of gallberry and palmetto, which are some of the best in the world. And so we um, developed a, a relationships with uh, various German importers and started bringing it in. And another thing was the globe jar was actually a little bit larger than the standard one pound honey jar. It would fit 500 grams versus one pound is 453 grams. So we could actually overfill the jars and meet the European requirements. That was just one of the European requirements that was, uh, necessary to get honey our u.s honey over there and so that started and it just took off after that so for a time over half of our business was export so doug one of the things i'm curious about I've, again I've, we've got some scripted questions but when i hear you talking about this it's it makes me think instantly how easy was it to get into the export market and, and with your I mean, I, th I think a lot of people listening to you are going to say, hey, you know, I've got a good honey, good honey products, et cetera, or I'm not interested in keeping bees, but I'm interested in purchasing honey and, and mm -hmm. exporting it. How easy is it to get in? I mean, it sounds like it was fairly easy. You found a market quickly and it expanded from there, but today it seems like it'd be a little bit more difficult. Could you talk about that? Well, there are many constraints that have been put on us uh, since the European Union was got put together at what, 2000, I think. But before that, there was a very important part of the Florida uh, honey production that gave us a great advantage. And that's where I have to shout out to the Division of Plant Industries and the Florida Apiary Inspection Department, because we could produce a document called a phytosanitary certificate, which said that um, apparently the 
the honey came from bees that were free of various diseases. And it was only because we had an apiary inspection department and we were one of only eight states in the United States that could produce a phyto. And that phytosanitary certificate was absolutely necessary. And that also has to deal with um, the Codex Alimentarius, which is the honey standard that has been around since the 1920s in Europe and is constantly getting revised. But we also had to meet the requirements of uh, the Codex Alimentarius. And it still exists. In fact, uh, it's being revised again. But uh, at that time, Flor we had an advantage with Florida honey uh, because our honey was unfiltered, uh, unprocessed, very little heat was applied. And so some of the criteria that Europe required we could easily pass, and we had that phytosanitary certificate. So I, I particularly want to point out a few people, Frank Robinson, Lawrence Cutts, who uh, were always the signees of these documents, and also the inimitable Kathy DeWeese, uh, their secretary, who uh, made sure we got our documents signed. Sometimes Lawrence was out in the field doing other things. I'd call Kathy and say, Kathy, the boat's about to land in, in a few weeks, and we're going to have to get that paper signed, and she'd make sure it, it did every time, and she understood that so much. So I have the Florida Apiary Inspection Department to thank for a lot of our export business. But Doug, if you were in it all of this time, right, and you were watching it, you know, as a child watching your parents deal with it, then you yourself having to deal with it as you started working with the business, what are some of the more significant changes you saw with the um, exporting and importing uh, business over time, the marketing business? As you mentioned, one example that when the EU was created, there were some changes that happened to you. So how did you guys adjust to those changes? What changes did you see as you guys were in the business? Yes, it was always about looking out for, for uh, other markets around the world. And in 2000, uh, when the EU formed, they changed all the requirements and they no longer accepted a state uh, phytosanitary certificate. They wanted a federal phytosanitary certificate that did not exist. We tried for years to get a federal program that would sign these papers, but it was more expensive than it was worth. Plus, they put in a lot of other uh, restrictions. So at that point, and we had been the largest U.S. exporter uh, of honey right at that point to, of all places, Sweden, where they were using 30 containers a year. But we had already developed markets in Japan and the Mideast, which included uh, Israel up until 1979, uh, Iran, and uh, Saudi Arabia, and uh, the United Arab Emirates. And there was a market where good honey was really appreciated. And I just have to say that because there's no better honey than Florida honey. It has such great qualities. And um, the, our Saudi customer always said it had the great blossom flavor. So we sold, continue to sell to the Mideast. Uh, and then later on, because things like honey with comb was our specialty and uh, is important 
in traditional cultures that appreciate honey, that uh, um, we developed a, a big market in the Mexican Hispanic market out in California of all things. And who would have thought that? But the fact was produce trucks were coming into Florida with produce from California every week and they always needed a backhaul so we could get very cheap freight out there. So it was, we sold Miel Companal and um, it, it was another big boost, but we constantly due to uh, different restrictions, uh, non-tariff trade barriers, uh, all sorts of different things. We constantly had to look around for what's next because we weren't selling the cheapest honey in the world. We were actually uh, trying to sell a quality product at a good price. And so that always kept us moving. We were able to find other markets to go to, but we always had to look around. Um, because of the way the world is, things change, but we always found there was a market for good quality Florida honey. So after Europe, there was the Mideast and Japan, where uh, our product was found in a lot of exclusive uh, stores there. We would have friends visiting Japan, and they'd come back and say, oh, I saw Tropical Blossom Honey in the store. And in, in Japan, the exclusive food stores are like in the basement of the ex exclusive department stores. <laughs> so our honey was always there. And uh, then later... Uh, we would sell to the Mexican-Hispanic uh, consumer out in California, of all things. So it sounds like it sounds like you guys are really just problem solving and trying to figure out what the next best thing was. And it also sounds like there was a lot of connections that needed to be made. I mean, you know, we're we're kind of here in our own little worlds, but to have to search worldwide for who we can sell to, who would take our products, and then also, you know, just all the different restrictions and rules and regulations to get it. It seems like a lot of moving parts. And it, I feel like you're kind of simplifying what's, you know, what you all actually did. Um, and it just seems like there are a lot of connections that, you know, needed to be made. And I, I assume that it was more than just one person. It probably took, you know, efforts from a lot of different people. Certainly, Amy. Um, we exhibited for years at the uh, National Association for the Specialty Food Trade, the Fancy Food Show. We were actually the fifth oldest members of that organization. And so we would meet a lot of our export customers there. The Foreign Agriculture Service, which I mentioned before, really helped mm -hmm. us. Uh, then later on, we would exhibit at both Anuga, which uh, is the big food exhibition in Köln, uh, Germany, and it's there one year, and then Cial in Paris is the next year. Sure. So with help from the Southern U.S. Trade Association, which was so good, and the Florida Department of Agriculture, and knowing the financing, I mean, we didn't like to do work under a letter of credit because there's so many restrictions on doing that. Uh, we sold to Yemen for a while, and the customer even came over here because they wanted to see Disney World. And, um, uh, you know, we found out there was a huge market in Yemen because Yemen is that ancient center of great honey in the Arabian Peninsula. And they couldn't sell, they sold out of their own product fast. So hmm. they couldn't find enough good quality honey. So, but that had to go through letter of credit. And believe me, going from Yemen 
and getting paid was always nerve wracking, but we had a good customer there too. Our other customers, we had this long-term relationship and whether it's a beekeeper and our many suppliers and Florida beekeepers that were really part of our uh, chain and that we felt like many of them were family, um, we, it's these relationships. You know, I always said, although we did a lot of testing, I knew where every drum of honey that was in our plant came from, and I knew the people, and I could talk to them if there was a problem. And uh, they stayed in touch with us and let us know on, on how the crop was coming along all the time. So that was also very key. Sure. So I guess, you know, kind of what Jamie had mentioned earlier, there are people that are wanting to start looking into export and importing their products. And so what, you know, what recommendations or suggestions do you have for some of these people, especially, you know, now that we can't go to shows, or at least we weren't able to due to COVID, you know, what suggestions do you have for some of these people who are looking into starting this? First thing I would do was contact the Southern U.S. Trade Association they have what's called a market access program and that is funding to help you do promotions and it's fairly easy where they will do matching grants uh, to help with some of your promotional uh, work that you're doing and also pay for part of these trade shows that I was talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, SUSTA is a wonderful resource, highly recommended. I assume they have a website, so I can go ahead and put that in yeah, the show notes. They do. They do. They're uh, out of New Orleans, but they also work with each of our departments of agriculture in the southern United States. Awesome. So, Doug, obviously around the U.S., there's a lot of people who produce a lot of high-quality honey. Obviously, you've been bragging a lot on Florida honey, and I agree Florida honey is very good. Uh, I know when I lived in South Africa, there's a little area in South Africa where a particular type of honey is produced you know, if it's not the best I've ever tasted, it's awfully close. And so, you know, there's a lot of groups around the world, um, a lot of beekeepers around the world who take a lot of pride in the production of their honey. Just This is just an opinion question. Outside of Florida, what are your some of your favorite honeys? What are some locations on planet Earth that you know to make really good quality honeys? I've actually been thinking about that, Jamie, because uh, I've met so many people in the honey trade and I feel like so uh, when we get together, we, we speak a common language. But um, talking about Yemen again, their native honeys are made from all those things like that you read about in the Bible, like frankincense and myrrh and all those odd things. And they have a very, very dense honey that has a real herbal taste that I really like. Besides Sal Palmetto, which is my very favorite Florida honey, Mountain Sourwood, it has this amazing sort of butterscotch vanilla taste that I really don't think I've ever tasted anything like it. But going overseas, there's several. We, at the Fancy Food Show, we'd always trade with people from Tasmania for Tasmanian leatherwood. I love Roma, Romanian acacia, which makes some of the finest comb honey in the world. And there's probably a half a dozen heathers, uh, an interesting honey. So I do have a few favorites, but I got to say, I really love Mountain Sourwood, and recently uh, I was turned on to Oregon Meadow Foam Honey. I don't know if y'all have tried that, but it's sort of like a combination of maple syrup and marshmallows, and it's really, <laughs> really interesting. 
I we'll have to try it. it. I'm sorry. What? Maple syrup and marshmallows. Doug? Yeah, that's flavor so note. I would give it. It's really, <laughs> that's really <so> funny. <laughs> so I've got a bunch. I, I, I just every time I get to try a new honey, it's just absolutely the best. Sorry that I was distracted by the uh, the maple syrup and marshmallows. So, <laughs> you know, the National Honey Board would. Uh, the, the general comments are floral, herbal, or earthy. But then if you go to UC Davis's huge list of flavor notes, you can see it's just as complicated as wine. I was about to say, what does marshmallow fall under earthy? Mm, I would <laughs> say that's kind of floral, but I don't know. Herbal too. I don't know. It's hard, hard to say. <laughs> All right. So um, I guess the last question that I have for you is where do you see the, the export import business headed? Well, the thing that's happened here in the U.S. and even since I've left the business in 2015, there's been a real differentiation in the market in that. And I, I have been throughout my life, I've seen the honey prices go up and down and up and down to what beekeepers uh, can get for their product that often is lower than their cost of production. And mm -hmm. I, I have, that's happened a lot. It's really happening now where uh, we, a lot of our um, basic honeys are coming in from India and Vietnam because the price is very inexpensive. Even Canadian honey is inexpensive now. So I understand the problems that beekeepers are having. And that's why honey production is, is not as important as pollination services today for so many of them. Another thing that happens is that we've had this great explosion of local beekeepers and buying local, which I highly support. And I love my local beekeepers and try to um, help them out any way I can. But um, uh, so they don't produce huge amounts of these varietals that we used to provide and, you know, we would sell nine containers of orange blossom. That's 540 drums to Israel uh, in a year or, uh, you know, just huge amounts. And even comb honey, it's getting harder to find comb honey up in the St. Mary's River region in Homerville, Georgia. It's really become difficult because of the environment to make the huge amounts of honey uh, that we used to make, and that really helped the export business. Today, it's going to be an exclusive product that meets the criteria of the export customer. And I could okay. say that there is a great taste for Florida honey. Uh, our Saudi customer used to say um, that our honey had the blossom flavor, and they picked our honey out of over 200 samples from around the world. But uh, it's, it's more difficult today unless you have that little edge of something that's very, very special. Well, I was going to say, I know that people are starting to do, you know, other products like creamed honey or they're infusing honey. And so they're just trying to make it a little bit different, you know, than the, the unfiltered honey. So I think there, there is definitely a need for both. Um, so it'd be interesting to see. And infu infused honey is not understood in other places in the world. Sure. Uh, you've got to remember that purity is a big thing about honey. It's, mm -hmm. it's one of our greatest attributes. So trying to sell honey that has had something added to it 
uh, does not fit into the definitions of honey that most countries have. So, Doug, hearing you talk about all this is a little bit away from exporting import, but I want to make a series of comments and just invite your your comments on my comments. But sure. you know, when I first started beekeeping about 30 years ago, and again, this is just my naivety. I'm from a very rural area and just didn't know a lot about the world growing up. Still don't, but know a little bit more. But you know, my my idea is I'd produce honey and I'd put it in quart jars and sell it at farmers markets, et cetera. But to me, over the last 10 or 15 years, and again, this is naivety speaking here, it looks to me like honey is being viewed more as a very upscale um, product. And what I mean by that is, it, to me, it's they're, they're, the people who are really successful marketing and selling honey are those individuals who's taking, you know, I might put mine in a, in a one pound jar and sell it for 10 bucks, but they'll put theirs in a jar that holds one pounds of one pound of honey, but it's a different, more ornate jar, and it's a specialty honey, and they sell it at a specialty market and get three, four, five times the price of, of what I'm getting. And so I'm seeing a you know that transition of honey from this kind of this bulk sweetener that that I feel that I once saw in the past to this really fine, exceptional, high quality, diverse, you know, almost mysterious product depending on where it comes from around the world well this is from citrus trees in florida or tupelo trees in the swamps of the panhandle you know, yes. you know and it's got this aura and story about it that i think is really just causing it to take off i mean what do you what do you think about all of that well that's what tropical blossom was all founded about jamie we always made a higher quality pack that people liked and a gift and honey gifts are great and because we have all this attention right now we're in the center of the universe with attention on the problems of bees and how wonderful honey is that it's there's even more opportunities for things like that but you know every year we had to come out with a new gift pack and a new gift assortment and this was what our company was founded on and why we sold up and down to all the um, fruit stands, everything around the state. But we kept on always having some kind of exclusive pot, exclusive jar, always looking for things like that. So I think the potential is really there. Uh, but also this idea of having very local honey, I think it really, it really is a good thing uh, um, to promote but, and it's easy to find jars. It's easy. You just got to get out there and look and look at what everybody else is doing. Doug, kind of my parting shot before we, we sign off with you. One of the things that I think we have a lot of room for improvement with regard to honey quality, and, and this is just a blanket statement. It's just my one person experience. But, you know, I travel a lot, speak to a lot of beekeeping clubs around Florida, around the U.S. and around the world. And people are always scrambling to give me their honey because everybody's so proud of the honey they produce. But I would guess, Doug, and maybe I'm a little off here, but I would guess at least 50% of the jars of honey that people give me, uh, the honey's fermented. And I and, and you know I sometimes think about one of the ways that we can just make simple improvements to the quality of our product is just by the handling and processing and know when to 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 extract and bottle it. And I and I know you work with commercial professional beekeepers who really knew their thing and were providing you a good product. But I I'm, I feel like this explosion in beekeepers is great, but I feel that there's some improvement that we can make on this product of ours that's already a good product. So. 
do you see that a lot or do you feel like a lot of your, you know, more hobbyists and sideline suppliers are providing you with a really good product already? I totally agree with you, Jamie, in that, you know, the first thing we always did was check for moisture and color uh, before we did any other analyses on what came in. But a lot of our Florida honeys are extra moist. And uh, nowadays, for instance, over here on the coast, mangroves become such a huge uh, popular honey, but it's very, very wet. In the old days, it was actually uh, sold in huge quantities to Europe, but we boiled it to get that moisture out and just cooked it and cooked it and cooked it, which ruined the honey. Today, it's very much harder to gently take out that moisture. But if you don't, you're going to get a product in the jar that once people taste that, they're not going to eat honey for a while. So it's something that we always had to do. And we try to treat our honey very gently. But I, I totally agree that a lot more education needs to be done. In the past, we were the place that beekeepers could bring their drums of honey. We knew how to market it and process it gently enough to make a fairly uniform product that everyone enjoyed. It's not so easy if you don't spend some time. Thank goodness you've got things like uh, Bee College going on and other outlets where people can learn because I agree with you. People need to learn a little bit when they're putting that honey in the jar. Amy, I don't know about you, but the whole time we've been interviewing and uh, talking to Doug, I get the impression like that, like Doug's the encyclopedia of honey. I, I agree. <laughs> I agree. Not just from our conversation today, but always, because he's think, also a very good gardener. I don't know if you know that. He helps yeah, the landscape you. at the lab. Yeah, Doug, you need to get a t-shirt that says, ask me anything about honey. I'm the encyclopedia. <laughs> I'm honey. your honey. That's what you should have on your <laughs> you shirt. Know, just to, just to kind of give you another thought, and it's just like, I always see us as beekeepers and even us as honey merchants uh, as part of a craft uh, and a trade that goes back for thousands and thousands of years. And, you know, wherever I go in the world, uh, I, and just like you must, Jamie, I feel this kinship with other people in this trade. And I realize that we're even more important than ever. But that's why I like to share today. It's also because people really like to listen today. Um, there's so much more attention. The one good thing that's come out of all the problems of bees is that people are much more aware and they want to hear. So it's, it's like my kind of duty uh, because of my partnership with honeybees and what they've done for me and my family to try to share this knowledge. Well, Doug, thank you so much for joining us on Two Bees in a Podcast. I'm sure our listeners are going to love everything that you've said, and I, and I know they're going to want to look into our show notes and find out more about, about you and honey in general. So thank you for joining us on this episode. Thank you. It was so nice to talk to both of you and look forward to coming back over to the Bee Lab and working in the garden out there. And uh, I can't wait. Thanks Perfect. so much. Can't wait to have you, everybody. That was Doug McGinnis, former co-owner of Tropical Blossom Honey from Edgewater, Florida. He is now involved in a lot of philanthropic activities, including being a board member of the Atlantic Center for the Arts, an expert on honey, and again, our guest today on Two Bees in a Podcast. questions or comments don't forget to like and follow us on facebook instagram and twitter at uf honeybee lab
Hey everyone, so we've got a pretty interesting segment today. I'm going to be interviewing Jamie. It's going to be the Jamie Amy Shmamey episode. Um, <laughs> what, what? <this> segment. <laughs> and I wanted to start out with actually the story. Um, Elizabeth Westman is one of the beekeepers that we have here. And she, her and I used to work a lot in my past job as an extension agent. And I would do a lot of I would do a lot of random IDs, Jamie. I don't know if I told you that, but I do like random insect IDs. And, and this, this particular person had brought in this sample and they had brought it in their vacuum cleaner. And so I, as soon as I saw it, I was like, that's termite poop. And, and Elizabeth just looked at me and everyone just looked at me and I was like, yeah, that's, that's termite feces. And she goes, how did you know that? And I'm like, if I could tell you the amount of times that I saw termite feces on a regular basis, it's pretty disgusting, but ba- that's basically, you we, really basically, forget. you know, your poo. I know my poo. Uh, you can I know my insect poo. By their poo. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's well, anyway, what, we, <laughs> what I wanted to talk about today were nest invaders and, you know, I guess different defenses that bees and honeybees have in general. And and I the reason I brought the termites up is because termites are also social insects. So we will be bringing them in um, to this conversation. But, you know, as far as nest invaders go, Jamie, can you just tell the audience, you know, what that is? What is a nest invader? So Amy, I'm like totally stoked to be doing this segment and and it's, I'm I'm going to sound almost like a a little, you know, school kid excited because Santa Claus is about to be here because when, when I was a PhD, no, no, because of the topic, I'm so (laughs) excited about this topic, Amy. And let me tell you, before I answer your question, why I'm excited about this topic. When I was a PhD student in South Africa, I started reading a lot of books on social insects and sociobiology and things like that. And this is where I was introduced to this topic. And I happened to be studying small high beetles for my PhD dissertation. So they just went hand in hand with this idea of nest invaders. So you asked me, you know, what should we talk about in this segment? Beekeepers, this is purely a science nerd topic. This is not, you're, you're, you're not going to walk <laughs> out of here saying, oh, well, I can manage my bees better because of that. But <laughs> I think you're going to understand something about bees that you didn't know before. And I think you're going to be excited about it. So Amy, now let me answer your question. You said, what is a nest invader? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it kind of answers itself, right? It's something that invades the nest. And generally speaking, when we talk about this in, in, in entomology, we will use the word symbiont. Now the word symbiont almost always has a positive connotation. When we talk about symbiosis or a symbiont, we think about things that are beneficial, but, but symbiont just means relationship. It is a species that has a close relationship with another species. All right. Mm -hmm. So those relationships can be negative, neutral, or beneficial. So the symbiont is always benefiting. The question is, is what's the other species? Mm-hmm. What, what is it mm-hmm. getting out of it? So in the rest of our discussion, the honeybee colony is the other thing. So for example, in symbiosis, you can have parasitism where the symbiont benefits, but the host is harmed. Sure. Varroa is a good example. The varroa benefits, but the colony itself is harmed. You can have commensalism in which the symbiont benefits, but the host experience is neutral. There's, there's a wingless fly called the Browlid that gets on honeybees. We'll talk more about this in a moment. But it it's benefits from living in honeybee colonies, but it looks like the honeybee colony itself is neither benefited nor harmed. So as far as the, the fly is concerned, it's a commensalist. It's, Wait, it does benefit. it have wings? 
it's it's a wingless fly. Nope. It, the adult is that females, the definition of a fly? It has wings. Yeah, no. You would so you would think you'd have to call it a walk, but in this case, it's not. It's <laughs> it's actually a fly. It's a diptera, but it's a wingless fly. I, I know what you're saying, but it's a wingless fly. <laughs> we actually have an Edis document on it. For those of you who are curious about brawlet or bee lice, you can look up our Edis document. We'll link it in the show notes. But it's a it's a good example of a commensal because it benefits from living in honeybee colonies, but honeybee colonies apparently neither benefit nor are harmed. And there's also mutualism where both things benefit. Mm -hmm. And and an example of that in the bee world would be plants. The plants benefit the bees, the bees benefit the plants. So it's a mutualism. So nest invaders can be parasites, commensalists, or mutualists. Mm -hmm. And, And all of this kind of wraps up in the world of symbiont. Now, you know, those are the definitions. I think that's important because now we've got to get into what do we mean by nest invader? Well, I'm going to exclusively discuss from henceforth arthropods. So that includes spiders, scorpions, beetles, flies, mites, you know, arthropod nest invaders. And so you were kind of asking, what is a nest invader? From this mm-hmm. point forward, I'm going to be talking about social insect nest invaders from the arthropod perspective, bees, uh, mites, other wasps, you know, scorpions, things like that. So, so, so that's kind of the background. I wanted to make sure everybody knows the terminology before we go any further. All right. So tell, tell me what the overall issue is um, just as far as what's going on with the nest invaders and honeybees. So Amy, great questions. And so (laughs) I've been a beekeeper for 30 years now. And if you ask me as a beekeeper, are there lots of arthropods that live in colonies? I'd be like, yeah, we have major things. We've got small high beetles and varroa. And well, that's what everyone says. Exactly. That's what they're concerned about. Yeah. And these things are terrible. That's true. But most, but as a scientist, most beekeepers don't know that as a social insect, social bees have very few nest invaders compared to social termites and ants. Mm-hmm. So, so if we, you know, as beekeepers, we tend to complain about all the things that bees get living in their nests. But if we were ant keepers or termite keepers, we'd really have. Is there an actual termite keepers out there? No, I just made there. that up. Amy, okay, I was like, are there managed termites? <laughs> just for no, someone you don't yeah, like, for, just for let illustration. Termites. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, for example, when I was a graduate student, you know, twenty years ago, was it twenty? Yeah, twenty-ish years ago, and I was reading about research that had been done on a species of army ant that one species had over 12,000 different species of nest invaders 12,000 12,000 and on my what you know exactly and that's one species of ants and so i and it actually i'm looking at the 1962 report 12,566 species of arthropods have been found to be associated with New World army ants. That's and insane. at the time, yeah, at the time I could only come up with about 156 different things that live in the apis uh-huh. species. So we we we're talking, you know, less than, you know, the fraction of a percent. And so if you look at termites and you look at ants, they host all of these arthropod invaders. But if you look at mm-hmm. social bees, they have comparatively few. Interesting. Well, so why is that? So why do bees or are you talking bees in general or honeybees specifically? So why so, do they have such few? Yeah. So bees in general, but I'm, I'm uh, you know, obviously for purposes of this podcast, I'm going to use honeybees as an example, but there's a few basic reasons this is the case. 
Amy, and it's fascinating to me as a biologist. So here's, here's a list of reasons that bees, especially honeybees, tend to have few nest symbionts compared to ants and termites. The very first one is that social bees, again, I'm going to focus on honeybees from henceforth, tend to nest in arboreal locations, in other words, in trees. Mm-hmm. So the would-be arthropod invader, the um, mite, the other beetle, the ant, or uh, the, the pseudoscorpion or scorpion or, or whatever, whatever, in order to get to bee colonies, they tend to have to go up into trees. So they have to be able to fly or they'll have to crawl a long distance without having anything to use until they get there. So the fact that a lot of social bees, but honeybees specifically, nest in arboreal locations has limited its development of associations with nest invaders. They also tend to eat concentrated food sources, nectar and pollen. So as a result, there's less debris left over. So they keep cleaner nests because they eat concentrated food resources. And this is important because other arthropods that are invading these nests are doing so oftentimes because of the waste that's scattered around the nest. Mm -hmm. Ants and termites have a lot of waste in their nest. And that's because they eat less concentrated food resources. So there's a lot of debris and debris is attractive to arthropod invaders. The next thing I'll say is that honeybee colonies tend to be smaller and have fewer occupants than are or do ant and termite colonies. Ant termite colonies have thousands, hundreds of thousands of individuals in mm-hmm. really large nests that tend to be in or on the ground, which are easily accessible. They have all of this debris. They're so huge that there's so much space for all these arthropod invaders to move into. And of course, the final thing that I'll mention is that honeybees, bees in general, but honeybees specifically have really good defenses that would limit the um, development of relationships with these other arthropods. They sting, they bite, they ball, they chase, they corral, they grapple, they utilize propolis, they express hygienic behavior. Collectively, all of these things limit the likelihood that an arthropod would be able to overcome these defenses to live in a nest. And which is interesting, Amy, if you think about it, because social insect nests are like utopias. They, mm-hmm. They're often thermoregulated, like in the case of honeybees. Mm-hmm. They often have lots of food. They have defenseless brood. They're often huge. They're often out of the elements. There's no rain, et cetera. So they're great areas for arthropods to invade. And arthropods have been really good at invading termite and ant nests, but less so at bee nests, especially honeybees, for all of these reasons I've stated. Okay, so now that you've kind of told us some of the defenses that bees have, I'm wondering how these other arthropods, how what do they do to overcome, you know, all these other, I guess, invaders, the nest invaders that they have in their colonies? I mean, you've hit the nail on the head because I've just told you that social bees have fewer are, you know, nest invaders, arthropods, mm-hmm. symbionts than do social ants and termites. But despite that, they still have some, Sure. right? You know, as beekeepers, we know there's varroa, there's small high beetles, wax moths, the bee louse, these other things that have integrated successfully into honeybee colonies. And the key is, is that arthropod invaders have ways of overcoming social insect host defenses. It's harder for them to do it for bees 
but it's still possible for them to do it, which is why we have a few arthropod invaders like Varroa slip through the cracks, Mm -hmm. whereas ants and termites, you get thousands of things that slip through the cracks. So what do invaders do that permit them to overcome these defenses? So we can know that by looking at the ones that have successfully overcome honeybee defenses. And we can ask ourselves, how did they do this? Okay. Sure. Number one, they can exploit weaknesses. So in the case of honeybees, when a colony is weakened because of, because of other diseases and pests, it makes them less able to combat things. We see this with our eyes with small hive beetles. When honeybees mm-hmm. are unable to handle varroa or queenless, et cetera, they now find it difficult to control small hive beetles. And so beetle populations can build up so they can exploit weakness. Also, they can switch hosts. Switching your host allows you to integrate into a new host colony at a way that is detrimental to the host. The the poster child for this is Varroa. Mm -hmm. Varroa integrated nicely in Apis serrana colonies in Asia, and they were almost commensalist there. You know, I guess you could argue that Apis serrana colonies suffer a little bit from Varroa and that Varroa benefit, but when you move Varroa to our uh, Apis mellifera yeah, colonies. They They're a true just can't handle parasite. <laughs> That's right. There were no natural defenses. So basically what happened is Varroa evolved the necessary strategies to overcome bees, but our bees didn't evolve the necessary strategy to handle Varroa so that when Varroa switch host, they were already built as it were to survive in honeybee colonies, but our bees weren't built as it were to to survive in the presence of Varroa. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about this when I get further down. And then there's facilitated transmission. That just means the ability of these symbionts to move. Small high beetles can fly. That's how they got up into arboreal nesting honeybees, right? There's forestry, where forestry simply means the ability to travel on the body of a host without being a parasite. So the bee louse is a good example of that. It can be spread between other colonies because it travels on the body of bees. Mm-hmm. Varroa, varroa techn- we, we tend to say varroa have a phoretic phase. They technically don't because parasites can't have a phoretic phase. They can, because a par- by definition, forestry is traveling on the body of a host without being a parasite. Varroa is a parasite, so it doesn't have a phoretic phase, but it does travel on the body of its host. So the last way that I want to focus on is actually the way that are the three most recognized methods of integration. This is what um, arthropod symbionts do to integrate into their nest. So the first way of this kind of last category is chemical integration. So they can use chemicals in some way to help them out. So one of those ways they can use chemicals is an adoption chemical. Uh, We see this a lot with things that live in ant colonies. When an ant's coming to attack it, this thing will produce an adoption Hmm. uh, pheromone that says, hey, don't attack me, love me, appreciate me, adopt me into the It's like a love spell. Exactly. The love potion of the (laughs) night. Isn't that what the beetles do? Well, we'll get there in a moment. (laughs) Perfect question, but we'll get there in a moment. Another chemical strategy is defensive. When an ant or a termite goes to after that thing that's invaded its nest, it might squirt out a a pheromone or a defensive chemical that makes the ant or termite run away. The third way to use chemical is appeasement, where 
when the ant or termite or bee comes to attack you, you produce something that appeases mm -hmm. them. An example of that are some beetles that live in ant nests. And when the ants go to attack those beetles, the beetles will squirt something out of their rear end that the ants actually like to eat. It might be a sugary substance as an example. What? They poop sugar? <laughs> See, aren't you excited about this all of a sudden? I mean, you talked early on about recognizing termites by their poop. You just discovered that some things poop sugar. We knew that should aphids be my, do it. Yeah, that's, that's going to be my special. You'll see in 20 years, I'll be like the That's insect right. poop specialist. The world expert on poop, insect poop. Yep. So small high beetles, you just mentioned it. They mm -hmm. use chemical, um, chemicals to integrate into honeybee colonies. There's a yeast that gets on their bodies, Cotamaya omeri, and when that yeast is deposited on pollen, it produces a component of honeybee alarm pheromone. We've shown, some, some scientists have shown that uh, small high beetles are attracted to honeybee alarm pheromone. So when beetles break free of the prisons that are in their nest, they run wild and deposit this yeast on pollen and that yeast produces honeybee alarm pheromone, which probably acts as an attractant to other beetles. So we know small high beetles, death heads, hawk moth, uh, uh, et cetera, are capable of using chemicals to integrate in their colonies. The second way, kind of in that last category, is body form. And there's a few different body forms, that strategies that you can take. For example, things that live in ant and termite colonies often look like the ants mm -hmm. and termites mm -hmm. with whom they live. Mm -hmm. Now, we don't have any examples of that in the honeybee world. Beetles don't look like them, etc. So another strategy that you can use body form-wise is you can be built like an army tank. That's called a limuloid body form. You tend to be smooth. You tend to have a very hard exoskeleton that is thick. You tend to have limbs, legs, antenna, et cetera, et cetera, that are fully retractable. And all of these things make it difficult for bees to flip you over, mm. bite you, or sting you. What does this sound like? It's a small high beetle. So small yeah. high beetles have that. They've got their shell. Exactly. Yep. Yep. And they can retract their appendages. And all of this has helped them integrate into honeybee colonies. And then there's that third They're body form. They're basically like turtles. Exactly. They're built like army tank <laughs> turtles. That's, in fact, some people, call the, some people call that uh, retraction where you retract their, they, where they retract their legs and antenna. They call uh -huh. it turtling behavior. So, there, so there's kind of three huh. ways to do body form. There's look like your host or be built like an army tank, or the third strategy, and you can tell me if you've heard this before, or know of any pests that do this, where you can be incredibly small and flattened, where you can fit between the segments of the host, or hide really well from the host. And clearly, that's what Varroa does. So yeah. their body form, their flattened body form, allow them to integrate successfully into honeybee colonies. And then the last uh, example of method of integration is the use of signals to ensure being fed. So a lot of things mm -hmm. that live with ants and termites are able to trick the ants and termites into feeding them. And at least two of our arthropod invaders, the bee louse and the small high beetle, have been shown to be able to trick their host, the honeybee, into feeding them. In the case of the bee louse, when two bees feed one another, the bee louse might move to where the bees are exchanging food and simply drink from that food while it's being exchanged. Mm -hmm. They've also been able, uh, they've also been shown to be able to use their feet, their tarsal segments to rub the mandibles of bees and cause the bees to regurgitate honey and then they'll feed.
Small high beetles do the same thing. They'll come up to the edges of the prison where they're being confined. They'll use their antenna to rub the mouth parts of bees, which causes the bees to regurgitate nectar. And then the beetles sit there and eat. So if you think about it, how can symbionts overcome host defenses? They can exploit weak colonies. They can switch hosts. They can have facilitated transmission. And within methods of integration, they can use chemical um, strategies. They can use body form strategies. And they can use signals to ensure being fed. And a lot of our um, pests, our arthropod invaders of honeybee colonies, use these strategies. Wax moths use some of these strategies. Bee louse uses some of these strategies. Varroa uses some of these strategies. Small high beetles use some of these strategies. But Amy, they're the exception rather than the rule. Mm -hmm. These critters are, you know, hyper designed to live in honeybee colonies. So they're a pain for beekeepers, but they're a novelty biologically because not many things could overcome honeybee defenses. Mm -hmm. So the fact that these could make them biological marvels and allow us to explore methods of integration into nests even closer. So what you think yeah. about all that? Pretty fascinating, that's, huh? That's awesome. Honestly, I would love to see videos and footage of this happening. I, I assume that there's something like that out there. What do you think? Yeah, there are definitely some videos. I know when I was a PhD student, a colleague of mine videoed uh, in great detail the small, the small high beetle tricking the honeybee into feeding it. And I use that video a lot when I give that particular presentation. But this topic's kind of near and dear to me. I love the idea That's that cool, yeah. honeybees are really good at limiting arthropod invaders, but the ones that have overcome those defenses really, truly are integrated in ways that are quite fascinating. Yeah, that's really that's really awesome. Well, so let me ask you this last question, I guess, about honeybees and them being in trees versus, you know, you were saying that it's a little bit more difficult for some of these um, arthropods to go up into their nest. Would you say that there are more nest invaders while they're managed closer to the ground than they would be in a tree up higher? Well, I would say, Amy, that a lot of what we do for our management purposes and beekeeping promotes um, arthropod invaders and heightened densities. Let me mm -hmm. explain what I mean. When I, when I lived in South Africa, you know, if, if you look in the wild there, there's a lower density of honeybee colonies in the wild than what we manage in our apiaries. You know, we'll slam 30 bee colonies in an apiary and that just promotes explosive sure, varroa reproduction. Sure. It promotes sharing of small high beetles. It promotes, you know, wax moth issues. Whereas in the wild, the density is considerably lower than what we manage. So absolutely, there's a lot that we do as beekeepers that facilitate uh, higher populations of these pests than what we would normally see for colonies in the wild. Hmm. Okay, cool. Well, this was a really fun segment. Um, it was totally random. And I'm just going to throw this out there. If listeners really enjoyed the segment and the topic that we were discussing, you know, you all would really love the Master Beekeeper program. And I'm just going to throw that out there while we're at it, because this Absolutely. is, I mean, this is one of the, the modules that we have right in, in the program that we're building right now. Absolutely. And I think it's a fascinating topic and, I, and I, it fascinated me and, and I hope to build research projects on it in the future. But I, I really hope you guys got something out of it. Again, I know it's just kind of science based, but I hope the story is interesting to you because I, I just find it fascinating. Yeah, they'll be able to go to parties and let them know their fun facts that they learned from Jamie Ellis. <laughs> it's everybody's favorite game show, Stomp the Chomp. 
we are at that stump the chump section. I've got three questions. I think I have like 50 questions in front of me from the audience, but we're just going to do three right now. And then we'll just have to keep having podcast episodes, Jamie, I think from now until the end of our life. Well, one of the things I like about the questions is they give us good ideas about maybe who to invite to do some segments. So a lot of what their uh, listeners are saying to us, I'm like, you know, that would be a great segment. I know who to interview yeah. about that. So keep those questions coming. They really do give us ideas on how to improve our podcast. Yes, absolutely. I think a lot of people are pretty happy with the podcast. So as long as they're happy with it, we'll continue producing, um, producing segments. All right. So the first question is from JK, our favorite I can't say favorite. He's one of the extension people who is running my old um, my old program in Orange County in Orlando, Florida. So he he reaches out to me frequently. So I do ask his questions, but he's wondering how to limit the growth of your colonies. He only has enough space for a certain amount of gear and he has room for about five highs, but right now he needs to make some splits. So how do we control bee growth and what do we do with those extra bees? You know, JK, I've had exactly the same problems before in the past. Uh, when I was a young beekeeper and had the ability to have more colonies, I would split colonies, just like what you're mentioning. But when I moved to Florida and had a backyard where I didn't really want more than about five colonies, I had this issue after every major honey flow, I'd have these incredibly strong colonies and all these bees and wasn't quite sure what to do with all of these bees. And so let me let me just give you a couple pointers. So pointer number one is there's no reason to have to split colonies. You can just keep strong colonies whose populations will naturally weaken as they approach winter. So a lot of people will say, you know, I've got all these bees, they need to be split. What am I going to do? Well, they technically don't need to be split. You could just add more space on the hive and control swarming and try to stop that process and know that their populations will shrink normally. However, I took a slightly different approach, um, you know, and this approach won't necessarily work for you other beekeepers listening, but let me, let me tell you what I did here at the University of Florida where I worked, I always needed bees for research projects and I wasn't treating my colonies at the time. So my bees always had a lot of varroa. And so what I would do was shake packages, queenless packages off of my colonies that I would then donate to the University of Florida for varroa projects and stuff like that. And, and I'm not saying you should run out and do that, but what I'm saying is- <laughs> I'm what, like, are you asking yeah, for Of course, everybody right needs to bring their, their spare bees to us. No, but what I am suggesting is that sometimes creating queenless packages that you could share with beginner beekeepers, that you could sell to other beekeepers. Another option is to make splits that you sell. One of the things that you've got to watch out for is, is having colonies makes the beekeeper want to have more colonies. But oftentimes the other person in the house the husband, the wife, whoever, the kids, et cetera, they may not want more bees in the backyard. So rather than splitting your five to have 10, split your five to create five nukes that you then sell to other beekeepers. You know, you're not in the nuke production business, but you can still generate a few nukes that you sell to other people. So I get what you're saying. So there's essentially three approaches here. Number one, you could just do nothing and manage strong colonies that are going to naturally weaken as they head into winter, in which case it'll self-correct, but you'll have to you know, manage swarming and add space. You can shake queenless packages that you donate to other beekeepers or you sell to other beekeepers, or you can make splits that you sell. And all three of those things will keep your numbers kind of where you want them to be while allowing you to, to get rid of some of the bees, these excess bees that your colonies are producing. Mm -hmm. And joining your local association, I'm sure someone would be okay with bees. 
Amy, that's great <laughs> advice. You know, it, there's local B clubs all over the place. No matter where you are listening to us, there's probably a local B club within an hour of you. And those are always great places to offload extra bees. I'm sure a lot of people might need a colony topped off because it's weak and they'd be happy to take a queenless package from you. And you might could even, uh, you know, trade it for 50 bucks or something like that. So there's a way to get rid of some of these excess bees without increasing the number of colonies that you have. Sure. All right. So the second question we have is from Mike through Instagram. And I've actually received this question pretty often from some of our Florida beekeepers. They're wanting to know when to add a honey super in the fall in Florida. Um, he's asking specifically North Florida, but I know that I've gotten this question just from a lot of people from different areas around the nation, actually. Yeah. So this is a little bit of a tricky question because I'm not quite sure what the implication behind the question is. So let me let me tell you what I mean. If you are asking from the perspective of when do I need to have a super of honey on those bees in fall so that they can survive winter, there's one series of answers. If you're saying my colony already has that super, but I'm wondering if I should super again because there's a a fall flow, you know, that's kind of another question. So let me, Mm -hmm. let me just start with the idea that you've got a colony that needs some food to survive winter. Generally speaking, this, the average colony needs about a medium super uh, full of honey to survive the coming winter. So if you are late September or October, you know, in most of the warmer areas of the world that are that are warmer temperate climates, in your case, North Florida, but, in, you know, in the southern half of the U.S. or southern part of Europe, etc., you're going to want to make sure that you have that medium super full of honey probably by October, because at that point, resources become less available, etc. Are you talking capped honey? Are you talking about nectar? You know, it doesn't really matter. I mean, I prefer it to be capped, but bees will eat uncapped honey as well throughout the winter if necessary. But if you're asking from the perspective that, hey, Jamie, my bees already have all the honey they need, I'm asking because there there appears to be a, a fall flow. Then what I would say is, is when that medium super is full, the one that you want to leave on them uh, for, for winter, and you see that there's clearly nectar coming in, you could put a, a super on top of that. But, but I will tell you, fall flows tend to be really short. And even when I lived in an area where I had a fall flow, I didn't usually make a ton of excess honey. But, but nevertheless, I might super in September or October to kind of catch a little bit of that extra extra honey. Now, I know a lot of you out there listening are saying, well, Jamie, you know, you answered the first question from the perspective that they need a medium super of honey. What about double deeps? Or what about colonies uh, that that only use or or beekeepers who only use shallow supers? Well, I tell people you probably need about two shallow supers of honey uh, for for this, the standard colony to survive winter. If you're, if you're wintering colonies in double deeps, that's where you have two deep brood boxes probably the uppermost deep needs to be, you know, around three quarters or more full of honey heading into winter. Cool. All right. So the third question we have is from Dave and he wrote to us on Facebook. He said he loved this episode. I'm not sure which episode it was, but he loved an episode, at least one of them. Um, He really would like for us to talk about mite mauling, ankle biting, or any other honeybee traits that can reduce the need to treat for varroa. So is it possible, you know, to pay for an extra type of honeybee that could fend off mites? So thanks for that question. There's a few different breeds of bees in the U.S. and actually around the world for that matter, depending on, you know, who's running breeding programs where 
but a few different breeds of bees in the U.S. that that are uh, tolerant of varroa. One of those is the Russian Queen. A lot of those are the Minnesota Hygienic uh, lines. There's some BSH lines, etc. Purdue University in Indiana, uh, Greg Hunt, when he was a faculty member there, he's retired now. He spent a lot of time selecting bees for what he called ankle biters. And what they did is they discovered when you put sticky screens on the bottom board of colonies and, and those sticky screens collect mites, and they were looking at those mites under a microscope, he discovered that a lot of those mites were, were physically damaged. They were missing legs, their, their carapace, their, their exoskeleton on their backs was, was clearly chewed or, or misshapen. And so he believed what they were seeing was evidence that the bees were, uh, with their mandibles, physically grooming one another or grooming themselves, removing the mites, chewing them to damage the mites, and then dropping them. And so, you know, the ankle biter idea came up because a lot of these mites were missing legs or parts of legs. And so they started breeding a line of bees that was um, really good at this grooming behavior. They, again, they call them ankle biters, but really it's just grooming behavior, aloe grooming, where they self-groom or groom one another. And they'll groom off these mites, they'll bite them, et cetera. And so there was a line of bees produced at Purdue University of Indiana. And I, if I'm not mistaken, in fact, Amy, this would be good to, to have as a podcast episode. There's still a faculty member there working on this breeding program. But this mirrors some of what a lot of other people around the world have been seeing, where, there, where bees have a natural defensive behavior to, to bite at these mites. And so what I would tell you, to, to answer your question specifically, I always tell beekeepers, they in fact should invest in queens that are produced uh, as a part of a stock that's resistant to Varroa. In the U.S., again, that would be Russian, VSH, Minnesota Hygienic, perhaps these ankle biters from Purdue. Uh, I know in Europe, as we've already had, you know, we had Raffaele uh, Dallolio with us in a, in a past podcast where he was talking about European breeding programs where they were looking at VSH and other traits. So all of these are things that, in my opinion, are worth investing in because it's just that extra step that you can take to address varroa in your colonies from a more natural perspective where the bees are doing the work themselves. So I always think it's, it's worth paying that extra money to get those queens that do that. Just one caveat, if, you're going, to, if you're going to invest in, in these stocks, you've got to be disciplined to maintain those stocks in the colonies. Mm -hmm. And what do I mean by that? You know, a lot of the beekeepers get real excited. They'll requeen all their bees with a certain stock. And they're like, well, you know, I can allow them to requeen themselves because I'll still have the daughters and the daughter's mm -hmm. daughters. It, it, it does not take long before you lose that trait if you're allowing subsequent queens to open mate. So sure. if you are going to truly give stocks a fair, uh, fair uh, shake, you've got to requeen yearly with bees that, that um, have been bred to have that trait. So it's not something that I, I would tell beekeepers, don't let your colonies requeen themselves. Every year, make sure that you're requeening with that stock to, to, to ensure that the traits you want are in there all the time. Hmm. Cool, well, thank you. That's some great advice. My pleasure. Hey everyone, thanks for listening today. We'd like to give an extra special thank you to our podcast coordinator, Lauren Goldstein, and to our audio engineer, James Weaver. Without their hard work, two bees in a podcast would not be possible. For more information and additional resources for today's episode, don't forget to visit the UF IFAS Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory's website, ufhoneybee.com. 
Do you have questions you won't answer it on air? If so, email them to honeybee at ifis.ufl.edu or message us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at UF Honeybee Lab. While there, don't forget to follow us. Thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. 